And today is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. There is what, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Father, we give this time to you as we study your word. May you speak to us through it. May we submit ourselves underneath it and find joy as we learn about you. And may you speak to us and guide us. Uh, Give me the words to speak, Father. Let them be your words and not mine. Uh, Father, anything that may be mine that comes out of this mouth, may it fall on deaf ears and only the truth be heard uh, by your people. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here. And we can gather together to worship once again. Um, I am, uh, to, to kind of give like, I guess a ba- basic background just to remember, because everybody's kind of got the Easter hangover kind of thing, right? Everybody has digested all the food. Yeah, I got to be specific with that, right? Digesting all the food. You kind of got back to work. Family's all left. Craziness is all cal- kind of calmed down. And to remember what we talked about last week, well, really the last number of months, he, Paul has spent the last two and a half chapters of, of Galatians driving home the points about how faith is the only way to be made right in the eyes of God, to be justified by God. That's the, the technical term. In other words, to be saved, to have salvation, to be saved from the wrath of God, not by any works of the law, but only by faith. Because it's only the righteous who live by faith. But none of us can do that if left to ourselves. For no one is righteous before God. We cannot perfectly obey the law. So God in Christ lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we could not die to save those who believe in him alone for their salvation. From God's wrath for our sinful rebellion against him. That's the, the crux of Galatians over and over again. He's hitting the point home. Now remember, these Galatian churches are being infiltrated by um, what many call the uh, Judaizers. They're, they're people who say, well, yes, you need to have faith in Christ, but you first need to become a Jew. You need to become circumcised. These Galatians are, are Gentile believers. They've never heard of the law. And so they're, they're saying, you need to be circumcised, you need to follow the Jewish festivals, and in short, in very quick summary, you need to become a Jew before you can become a true Christian. And Paul is saying, no, 
No, don't fall back on the law. Why? Because the law is not enough. And as we'll see in coming, coming weeks, he's going to say, well, if you're going to follow the law, you might as well go all the way. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go ahead and read ahead. And uh, it's one of my favorite sermons I'm going to preach here in about, well, three or four weeks. We'll get there. We'll get there. That's a hold you suspense, right? But today, Paul addresses the natural question that we ask. If righteousness has always been found through faith, which is what he's saying, then why in the world did God give the law? Why would he throw some sort of monkey wrench into the middle of all of this? Why not just stick with faith? Well, there are two reasons Paul gives for the law. Transgression and expectation. And then he goes on to point out the difference with how the promise to Abraham and the law to Israel were mediated. That's your mediation. And if you know me well, I don't do this kind of thing. Did you catch that? Transgression expectation, mediation, and I could have put completion, but because I don't like it, I just said fulfillment. And finally, how it all points to Christ as the fulfillment, the completion of the law. If you want to cross that out, you can put completion if it makes you feel better. Paul gives a human example right at the beginning to help the churches of Galatia better understand what he's trying to say. So when he says, I'm giving a human example, that human example is eventually going to fall apart because it's not a divine example, okay? It's just a way for us. It's like a sermon illustration that if you take it to its full length, it probably won't completely answer all the questions, but it gives us at least a better understanding of what Paul's trying to, 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 uh, to get. Why are you falling back on the law to justify you before God? And why is it, this is faulty thinking. Why is this faulty thinking on the parts of the churches of Galatia? He says, even with a, a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So when my wife Katie and I, we bought our house um, here, we went to the bank. And if you've ever done this, you sign your name away about a billion times on legal documents. You have no idea what what they're saying, I turned to my realtor who was Ryan Palmer and I said, I'm holding you accountable for this if this comes back to bite me in the butt. I didn't, I tried to understand the best that I could, but we sign our name. And when we start signing our name to these documents, what are we saying? We're saying we will consent to the provisions and the requirements of this agreement in a sense of this covenant between us and the bank. Uh, For instance, we're going to pay this much every single month for this many years. They won't ask any more of me, and I won't give any more than that. So our signatures, once they were on those papers, we could not change the provisions of the requirements of that promise or of that covenant without long, thorough, legal process that in, in essence would totally change the agreement. You would have a whole new agreement. So it doesn't, when you, you'd have to do a lot of work in order to change it. Once your signatures are on and it's ratified, it's done. Nothing changes that agreement. And the same is true for God's covenant promises that are made to Abraham. Once it was ratified by God, not by God signing his name on a piece of paper, but by God just saying in his word, I will do this, the covenant was established with Abraham and that covenant was 
unbreakable. It's unbreakable. Hundreds of years later, the law comes in, and yet the law did not and could not cancel out Abraham's, the promise given to Abraham. But the promises, if we really look at the promises and we look at the law, they seem very different, right? So turn with me. Let's just, I'm going to read the promises to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles, your Bible app, go ahead and open this up. Go to Genesis or Genesis chapter 12. And these are the promises that God gives. He goes into much greater detail later on. Um, but this is the basic, the basic promise that he gives. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and then we're going to jump to verse 7. And I will make of you, that is to Abraham, this is God speaking to Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And then jump to verse 7. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there, Abraham built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. That's the promise given to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to do that. And all the nations are going to bless. And, and your people, your descendants, your offspring, your seed is going to inherit this land that you are now residing in. This will all be yours. That's the promise. And then if we go to the law, which is the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, some of it's repeated in there. I'm not going to read through four books, um, but you read through that and you go, what does mold in the north corner of the house have to do with Abraham's descendants inheriting all the land? These are two very different things. And so, it's a natural question. Why would God give the law then? Why? I mean, it seems like he's saying, well, the promise to Abraham doesn't work. You got to do this new stuff. And these are two totally different things. And Paul says, why then the law? Why was the law given? The law was given because of transgressions, because of sins, because of disobedience. Paul uses a similar argument in Romans 3 where he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified, made right in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was given, and this, this is a struggle, okay? So the law was given to increase humanity's knowledge of their own sinful disobedience against God. One human vice is our ability to minimize especially when it comes to our ability to evaluate ourselves. Don't we always give ourselves grace and we tend to not give grace to others? For example, maybe you can, you can uh, understand this. When I speed past a vehicle going too slow, I tell myself that I'm in a hurry. But man, when those snotty-nosed college kids fly past me, oh, those kids are dangerous. They're in such a hurry. Why is everybody in such a hurry? Right? We, we tend to look down at others because we're in the right, they're in the wrong. No matter the situation. That we minimize our responsibility and we maximize everybody else's. Or to put it in more spiritual terms, 
well, yeah, of course I sin, but I'm not like that guy over there. I'm not like, have, have you seen that, that woman, the way she acts? Have you seen the kid? That, I don't, I'm not like that. I mean, I'm not great, but I'm not like them. We are no different today than those living in Abraham or Moses' time. So God gave his people the law to reveal the depth and the complete infiltration of sin in them. Their actions, their thoughts, their words. There is nothing about us as humanity that sin has not touched. We can do good things, absolutely. We can do non-sinful things. But that part of my life, there's no part of my life and my mind and my actions and my words that cannot and has not been influenced by sin and disobedience. The Israelites thought that because they were the offspring of Abraham, literally the seed of Abraham, that they were fine in the eyes of God. We're good. We're good. We're not perfect, but at least we're not like those nations, which is ironic because eventually they wanted to become like those nations. And as his offspring, they were the recipients of the covenant promise given to Abraham. They weren't perfect people by any means, but they were God's people. And so they were good. We're good. We got it. They had nothing to fear. But when the law was given, the depth of their sinfulness in the face of a holy and perfect God ripped the veneer of we're good completely off. The scripture, Paul says, the law, in verse 21, imprisoned everything under sin. Paul even admits that he experienced the same exposure of his sinfulness when he writes in Romans 7, yet if it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would, have, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Okay, this is what he's saying. I thought I was good. I mean, I was perfect. I thought I was good. And then I read, you shall not covet. And it goes, well, I don't really think I covet. Oh, wait, I coveted there. Oh, and I coveted there. It exposed the sin in Paul's life. And then all of a sudden, all this covetousness start to, started to come to the surface. The law didn't help him fight covetousness. It revealed his covetousness. It revealed his sin. The law was given to expose the depth of the roots of sin in every aspect of every one of our lives. There's not one area in which sin does not touch and has not affected us. The law does not cancel. The law does not add to the promises of Abraham. It drives the people of God back to the promises of Abraham. It reveals we can't do it. You go, well, what does mold have to do with it? Everything in our lives has to be perfect, without stain, without blemish, including mold in our house. We go, well, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's perfection, and we can't meet it. It's ridiculous to us because we can't do it. We just can't. And so the law drives us back to the promise of Abraham, and it creates an anticipation and an expectation of the offspring 
literally the seed of Abraham to whom the promise has been made. Why should there be such an expectation? Well, Israel assumed that, again, they were the offspring of Abraham. But when the law was given and the depths of Israel's disobedience was exposed, there was a great expectation for the true seed, the Messiah, that would come to deliver God's people from God's wrath for their disobedience. You see this throughout the whole Old Testament. You have figures like Moses. Moses is leading the people of God out of slavery. He receives, and we'll get there in a second, but he receives the law from God and gives it to Israel. He's a godly man. And they go, reading it, you go, man, Moses, he must be the Messiah. And then he hits a rock instead of speaking to it, which is small, but he disobeyed God. And immediately he refused entry into the promised land. Moses is not perfect. He he fails. Oh man, well, if Moses can't do it, who spoke directly to God and saw God's glory and glowed with God's glory, if he can't do it, well then who can? Well, maybe his successor, Joshua. But Joshua eventually dies. He doesn't live the perfect life that he should. You go to the judges, and each one of the judges, well, maybe this is the Messiah, and each one of them, one at a time, as good as they are, are not perfect. They don't meet the full requirements of the law. And then you get to the kings, King Saul, who God chose for the people, utterly falls on his face and is rejected by God. David, I mean, really, David, who's the man after God's own heart, he's got to be the Messiah, right? He's got to be the one who's going to lead God's people into the spiritual promised land to receive the inheritance, to fulfill the law. And then he commits adultery with Bathsheba, kills her husband, murders her husband, is exposed, and then that's the beginning of the end of his reign. David's not perfect. David messes up. And then you get to other kings like Hezekiah later on in the history who turns the people back to the law and back to, the, to God and to worship of him and takes down all of the false idols. And you go, Hezekiah, he must be the Messiah, right? And then he dies and shows and exposes even his sinfulness throughout his reign. And over and over and over again, these figures that rise up that seem to be the one suddenly fails and falters and dies without, without ever being the Messiah. And God's people are left in the same stew that they've been in their entire existence. And so this expectation grows. Who would be the one to save us? Who's going to step up? Who is going to save us from the wrath of God? And so there's growing expectation of the seed, where even for Paul, the singular worst of the, the word seed, not seeds, seed, points only in one direction, to the true Messiah, to one individual. He says, who is Christ, as Jesus, the Messiah, the one seed of Abraham that saves and justifies. 
But there's something else about the law that stands out. The law had an intermediary. Okay, now you need to show me some grace on this because, whew, boy, this one sentence, one verse threw me for fits. In fact, it's still throwing me for fits. I stayed up and went to bed last night and sat in bed for over an hour dwelling on this, showing like, what does this mean? What does this mean? It's, it's ours. So well, let's just get in. He says, and it was it, the law was put in place by angels, through angels by an intermediary. That, that in itself, you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Okay, the angels are a reference to God's messengers given to others um, through angels, just like God spoke through the angel of the Lord in the burning bush to Moses, right? It's, it's God's presence. It's his glory. It's being portrayed and spoken by an angel through the bush to Moses. And here it's given to Moses. The law is given to Moses by uh, an angel. But the problem with that is that there is no reference in the Old Testament account of the law being given by any angels. Nowhere in the Old Testament. But Paul here, Stephen in Acts 7, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 2, they all reference angels delivering the law. Now we could, this is one of those things where you could get lost, uh, you could lose the forest for the trees. Like you get so stuck on that angel. What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And it's a great conversation. But once you start going into that hole, sometimes it's hard to get back out because you begin to lose what Paul is actually trying to get out. We think all about angels and we're forgetting the big picture. What are we to make of this angel? Well, the simplest meaning is usually the best meaning. The more complicated you get, the less likely it probably is. Um, and the simplest meaning is that the real presence of God was with Moses on Mount Sinai through the presence of his heavenly messengers, just as it was in the burning bush. Problem solved. I think that's pretty simple, right? You go, okay, now what about an intermediary? The law could not be given directly from God to the people of Israel, lest the people be destroyed. That's why he says, and we, when we went through Exodus, what, last year? How many times did he say, don't, don't come near the mountain? Don't even touch the mountain or you're going to die because my presence, God's presence, is on this mountain and is making this mountain holy and you are far from holy. You go near here, you will be killed instantly because I am perfect and you are not. And so Moses had to act as a mediator to stand between holy God and sinful Israel. Paul's words in verse 20 are difficult to say it lightly. Um, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Those are two statements. They both make sense alone together. They're really hard to understand. And so I want to take these in these two parts. An intermediary requires two parties to stand between, right? You've got person A who's mad at person B, and so you have person C who comes in and says, I'm for both of you. I want to mediate between the two of you. So this is Moses, God, and Israel. And Moses had to stand between lest Israel be completely destroyed. So Moses takes that, um, takes that spot as the mediator between them. But in the promise to Abraham, there was no mediator. There was no mediator. God spoke directly to Abraham. Now, doesn't that mean then the law is different from the promises? One is by faith, 
The other is by works, right? So in the very next verse, though, Paul asks that same question. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And he says, absolutely not. The law is unable to give us life and righteousness in the eyes of God because we cannot fulfill its requirements. The law required a mediator between God and his people. The promises went directly to Abraham. And then he says, but God is one. What does this have to do with the promise? What does this have to do with the law? What does this have to do with an intermediary? The context around the passage is very helpful to us. And in the next verse, in later verses, verse 28 of Galatians 3 reads, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male, there is no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, to be very clear, this is not a text advocating transgenderism or any other movement of our society. That is not what he is saying here. The churches of Galatia were being divided into ethnic camps, Jews and Gentiles. But God is undivided. He is one. He is, his one seed, Jesus Christ, is one. He is God of one people. He's not just God of the Jews. He's the God of the Gentiles as well. For belief and faith in God's promises of a blessing through Christ alone is the only determining factor of being God's people. The law required an intermediary. We could not go directly to God because we are sinful. But the promise of Abraham, through Christ, we have direct access to God. We don't need an intermediary as in Moses. You could, see, you could go to the passage where it talks about Christ is the mediator. We have one mediator between us and God. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily what Paul is talking about because he doesn't bring it up here. The whole point is to say, churches in Galatia, you are divided. You were divided in a line, but on a line that should not exist. You are saved by faith, not by works. You are saved by the promises of Abraham fulfilled in Christ, not by the law fulfilled by you. You have to have faith in Christ in order to be saved, to be justified in the eyes of God. And God has made you one people, not a divided people. He has made you like himself, undivided. Now, we, we push against that all the time, don't we? We have throughout all church history. We, we create divisions, and God says, no, we are one. What holds us together is Christ. The law was given to point out our desperate situation of sin and to drive us back to the promise given to Abraham through faith and the seed, Jesus Christ, who would bring that promise of oneness to fulfillment. One seed, one people, one God. The law imprisoned everything under sin so that, it says there, verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. No law, no salvation. Isn't that kind of crazy? That's, that's basically what he's saying. No law, you wouldn't realize how sinful you are. And you would not turn to faith. And you would not turn to me, God says. Jesus Christ 
fulfilled and completed the requirements of the law so that the promise of Abraham would be completed in both Jews and Gentiles. The blessing of justification, being made right in the eyes of God, being saved, is given to anyone from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, any who believe by faith in Jesus Christ. And as we'll soon see in the coming chapter, those who believe, those who believe are full heirs, full recipients of the inheritance of eternal life in God's presence. You know what that means? It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You receive the inheritance equally. It doesn't matter if you are a slave or, a f- or you're free. You receive the inheritance of eternal life equally. It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. You receive the inheritance equally. Because as the people of God, through faith, we are all one not in our ethnicity, not in our socioeconomics, not in the color of our skin, not in anything. It's in Jesus Christ alone that we find our unity. And we, tell, we, 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 we tend to fail to remember that. Even at Elm Creek, we become divided by temporal things. And we forget, we forget that we are all, as believers, as His children, equal in the inheritance of eternal life. I am the pastor of Elm Creek Community Church that does not make me more of a recipient of eternal life than Jason who sits back there or Jeremiah who sits back there or Liz who sits back there hiding behind the wall making sure that I I sound good which is a really hard job by the way. It doesn't it doesn't that doesn't matter. That's not that's not our identity. Only Christ was able to fulfill the promises given to Abraham and bring us salvation from the wrath of God for our sins. And this means that if we believe, then our identity is not found in those things. It doesn't mean they're not important. Okay, don't, don't hear me saying that, remember a couple of weeks ago, I just said, I'm proud of my German heritage, not my Nazi heritage. I had to clarify that later on, okay? My grandfather was not a Nazi, okay? He was a German soldier, I'm proud of my German heritage, which goes farther back than World War II, by the way. I'm proud of it, but that is not my identity. It's not my identity. My identity is in Jesus Christ. I love being a member of Elm Creek Community Church, but that is not my identity. My identity is in Christ. It's not found in our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, our gender, or any other dividing line that we want to make. These things, though important, are not the true identity of God's people. We are one people only because we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's verse 28. Our world and our society... And, you know, let's just be honest, our own hearts, right? We, we work hard to create divisions in this world. And we need to fight against that. But as God's people, we need to unite under Christ. 
We need to remember who we really are. We think we're better than others or we're not as sinful. The reality is, is we're all on the same plane. We need Christ. He's our salvation. He is our identity and we are his people. And you say, well, okay, how do I apply this to my life? Number one, be humble. Be humble. Pride. Pride seeps in and we think of ourselves as better. Well, I make more money. I have a better job. I have better kids. I, you know, that person likes this and I like this and this is way better than that. I and mean, we create all these divisions and it's about us, 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 us. Or Elm Creek is awesome because of all this stuff that we do and we're a family and we love each other and that's all good and great. But if you're here because we all love each other, I can guarantee you we're going to let you down eventually. We're humans, right? We sin. We get mad at each other. We say dumb things and we say hurtful things. And hopefully we repent of that and we seek forgiveness. But the reality is, is if our identity is found in one another or found in anything other than Christ, we're missing the point. We need to humble ourselves. We need to let go of our pride. We need to look to Christ and say, I am nothing without him. I am nothing. I am, I am a, oh, I'm something. I'm a sinner destined for hell without Christ. But with him and with his people, we come and we worship. Not because we're perfect, but because we know we're not. We, we come together because we're God's people and we want to give him the glory and give him the honor. We want to remember we want to remember that when Christ died on the cross, he saved his people. Yes, he saved Mark, but we are a body. We are a body united under Christ. You cannot have the individual without the group. You cannot have the group without the individual, and we are all one in him. So that means, yes, Christ died for me on the cross, but he also died for his people and who I am a part of who you are a part of if you believe. So when we celebrate communion together, what do we do? We're focusing our, our hearts on Christ to go, Christ, you are the one who saved us. This is, this is partially why we hold open communion, what we call uh, open communion. You don't have to remember, you don't have to be an attender of Elm Creek. What we want is for you to realize and understand Communion for us is about those who believe, those who are saved. If you believe, if you are saved, if you repented of your sins, God has saved you. You're not perfect, but God has saved you and you are part of the body of Christ. You are welcome to join us. And remember with us that Christ is the one who died for us. Christ is the one who made us who we are. He's the one who fulfilled the law. He's the one who fulfilled the promises so that through faith we might be saved and be counted as the people of God. Now, if, if you're here and you haven't put your faith in Christ, well, first of all, believe. Believe. Repent of your sins. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved, Scripture says. But if you're here and you have not put your faith in Christ, if you reject the words of, uh, of the Bible that, that say that you must repent and believe, then we just ask, 
refrain from taking with us. We take this time seriously. This does not save us. Taking the bread, taking the cup, we, we, this is not saving grace at all. It's those who are saved remember. And there's power when the body of Christ celebrates the sacrifice of the one of whom we find our identity in and we obey him because he says remember. And as a body, that's why we take it together. We don't take it individually. We do it together because we are one in Christ. And so as, as Kurt and Danny are handing out the bread and the cup, hold it, spend time in prayer. If, if you're not a believer, we just ask again that you refrain for taking it with us. We don't have communion, please. We're not going to judge you for that. If your heart is not right, even as a believer, and you need to go and confess sin, we ask that you do that. Um, do that before you take communion. We want this to be a time of remembering what Christ did, remembering who we are in him, because without him, we are nothing. So go to God, spend this time in quiet prayer and reflection, and then we'll come together as a family, as a body, and we will take um, the blood and the body of Christ together.